Drummers brought to you by Session Ace. Whether you're looking for high quality in ear monitors, high resolution studio microphones, or any other sort of thing that you need day to day as a musician, either in the studio or on stage, Session Ace provides remarkable tools for musical craftsmen. Find out more at SessionAce.com. there and welcome to dial a drummer i'm your host brian stevens welcome to the new season and welcome to this new show format new for me at least before we get started i want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on youtube and in your favorite podcast apps we'll have bonus content that you'll see on the youtube channel in addition to the episodes also follow the show on instagram and facebook so that you'll get notifications every time a new episode hits the feed and please share great episodes like this one with your friends i'd love to get drummers all over the world plugged into the show and benefiting from the incredible wisdom and insight of our world-renowned guests and please patronize the sponsors like this week's sponsor, Session Ace. You'll hear more about them later in the show. I'm so excited to be back here with you making new episodes of the Dial a Drummer podcast. For the last few months, I've been banking conversations so that we could turn those into episodes for you. Action-packed, information-filled. This season, I've got some incredible guests planned for you. Some of the world's greatest drummers and drumming educators, and in the case of today's guest, someone who's both of those things. And instead of a long preamble, like I tend to do, we're going to get right into the meat of this conversation because it's over an hour that's just jam-packed with knowledge bombs and insight and, and stuff that you can really use. So let's talk about my guest for the first episode of Season Two, I wanted to bring out the big guns, and especially in the world of jazz and jazz education, personally, I don't think there's a bigger gun in the world right now than this one. Now, born in 1961, Carl Allen grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on gospel, R&B, and funk, and he later turned to jazz after hearing an album by the legendary saxophonist Benny Carter. Some of Carl's first hometown gigs were with sax great Sonny Stitt and James Moody. It's a definite bellwether for the things that were to come. Now, Carl studied at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay from 1979 to 1981, and he transferred to William Patterson College in New Jersey, where he graduated in 1983 with a bachelor's degree in jazz studies and performance. That's an important point. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Carl also joined trumpeter Freddie Hubbard a year before his graduation and served as his musical director for eight years. And in addition to his tenure in Freddie's band, 
Carl has played and or recorded with Jackie McLean, Michael Brecker, Sammy Davis Jr., Branford Marsalis, Lena Horn, Herbie Hancock, Benny Golson, Christian McBride. I, I'm just scratching the surface of his resume and his teaching career. It includes a 12-year tenure at the Juilliard School, where he also served as Artistic Director of Jazz Studies for six years. He's taught and given clinics and master classes at other schools, including the Berkeley College of Music, the University of Southern California, Northwestern University, the University of North Texas, and also music schools and conservatories worldwide, including places like Austria, Holland, and New Zealand. And having seen one of his master classes firsthand, I got to see him here in Atlanta at Emory a few years ago. Incredible, incredible clinician. In 2012, because of his long and illustrious career in jazz and music education, Snow College in Ephraim, Utah, awarded Carl an honorary doctorate degree. Now, currently, he holds the position as Endowed Chair of Jazz Studies at UMKC in Kansas City. He also continues to travel the world playing jazz and teaching musicians around the globe. Just as I was about to move to Atlanta in late August of 1995, I first saw him on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine, and that led to the first time I heard him play on his own solo album called Testimonial. Now, as an aside, I just picked up a sealed 1995 copy of that CD on eBay, and I'm going to be sending it to him to crack it open and autograph it for me. So, so Carl, that's heading in the mail towards you. <laughs> anyway, in that article, he said some things that stuck with me even to this day. I'm going to quote him on a few things. Quote, I do understand marketing. It's important to a degree for a person to have a look, to have a vibe, a presentation. There's some musicians who are great, but not charismatic. Some folks have to be won over by one's charm. As a musician, you're in business for yourself. So you have to understand marketing. It's important to be out there all the time. Art Blakey used to say, you're either appearing or you're disappearing. There was a very strategic plan for me. I think there are natural leaders. And then you have folks who are great followers. I've always been a self-starter, a self-motivator, and very aggressive about what it is I want to do. I never believed in waiting for someone to bring me what I want, unquote. Now, back in 1995, when I was 23 years old, those words from Carl Allen were incredibly important in helping to shape me into who I am now in 2022. 50 years old. Now, I dare say that reading those words set me on the path to becoming the business-minded musician, engineer, and producer that I am today. So without further ado, here's my incredible conversation with the one and only Carl Allen. So, Carl Allen, I am so happy to have you here on Dial a Drummer. Uh, you know, for the reboot of this podcast, I wanted to bring in some big guns. And that's why I, that's why I brought you here. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
It's a pleasure so, to be here. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to we're just going to see where the conversation goes. Yeah. Don't think of this as any kind of interview because you've done so many of those. And there's some great interviews out there. Uh, all you have to do is go into any pod app, podcast app, and just start searching for Carlisle. You'll find plenty of stuff. But right now, tell us tell us what you're up to right this moment. Well, I am uh, actually sitting in my second home in Kansas City uh, because this past, well, last year uh, in the spring, I accepted a position as the endowed chair of Jazz Studies, Duke William and Mary Grant, endowed chair of Jazz Studies at um, UMKC in Kansas City. Congratulations. Thank you. So I started in August. And uh, it's a great program. In fact, my predecessor, the wonderful saxophonist Bobby Watson, did an amazing job. And, you know, I've known Bobby for 30 plus years and I've been here to do clinics before. So it's um, it's great to be here. You know, the toughest part about it is going between the two cities, you know, because I have still have my home in Brooklyn and, you know, place here just going back and forth. But uh, I love it. I, I love creating opportunities for young people, you know, so that's what it's all about. Now, when you say going back and forth, how often are you going from one locale to the other? It just depends. I mean, just like I've been here. Well, so I came out in the middle of August. And then I went like August 12th to be exact. Then I went back on the 25th because I had a gig. And, and in the fall, I was back, you know, several times. But, you know, before I came out, I said, hmm. I probably go out every two, three weeks, you know, because my wife is still there, you know. Oh, okay. And uh, so I was thinking I'll go back every two, but it's it just you know, it just depends, you know, because I still have gigs and I'm touring, and so I've been back here now since uh, the 16th mm-hmm. of um, of January, and uh, well, I was here for a week and I went back, to, but now I'm here till the end of the month. Actually, that's not true. I got to go out this weekend, but uh, at the end of the month, I leave, you know, then I go to Europe for three weeks for Christian McBride. Oh, so speaking uh, of. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a, a brand new record that's out, right? Like live album. It's a brand new record that's seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. It just came out November 26th, but we recorded it live at the Vanguard. We play the Vanguard every year in New York. And we recorded it like seven years ago, and it was just in the can. Okay. And we were like, hey, we might as well put it out. So McBride has got so much stuff going on. <clears throat> you know, he's very strategic about when he releases the records and then, you know, to coincide with the tour. Because we, we had some dates in the fall, and then we were supposed to do the Jazz Cruise last month. They got canceled. Then we have dates at the end of this month, and then we go to Europe for three weeks, and there's some spring dates in summer. So, um you know, but I'm just, you know, I just love being on the road playing with those guys. Right, right. So you're going to have to think back a little bit since that record was was so long ago. But in preparation for live albums like that, what is the process? I'm sure you don't just show up and here's a bunch of charts and let's uh, read these things down and maybe we'll record it tomorrow. Night. What's that process like? Well, for that band in particular, it was just a gig. That's just a gig. Because we've been, the band has been together since uh, 2009. Mm-hmm. So we've been playing together for so long 
that, um, and like I say, every year we do the Vanguard, we had gigs up until that point. So it was just part of what we did. And they just happened to, you know, document it. Okay. But, uh, you know, in other situations, for live situations, it's a little bit different because you really try to feed off the energy of the audience, which you normally would do on a gig anyway. But for for recording, you're very conscious of that because, you know, there's a certain energy that comes with playing, you know, before an audience. But then also there's a certain mindset you use when you're recording. You know, it's not so much of not wanting to mess up, per se, but you're more conscious about stuff because, you know, you don't want to have to stop and do another take and all of that stuff, you know. Sure, sure. Is, is that always in the back of your mind when when you're playing? Because it, it's different playing jazz music and recording a live album than, say, doing like a pop record or a rock record. A lot of times when I do those kind of things, everything has already been played to the point where it's almost like we just sort of hit the button and we play the same thing that we've been playing. With your kind of music, things happen different every flipping second. Every night, every night. I mean, you know, you, you play... You know, it's not like a, a pop gig where we play the same set every night. The, same, the set is going to be different from night to night. And the solos are going to be different. You know, but the thing is, you know the song so well, uh, I like to look at it as it's just a conversation. So this is, the the, the song is the topic. Yeah. And, uh, and where you go with that conversation is really dependent on the moment, you know. So in, in that conversation, how dangerous can that conversation get? If I could use that word to talk about jazz, because that yeah. record does sound dangerous at times. Yeah, like, yeah. whoa, I, I, it feels like, you know, the wheels could fall off this thing at any time, but these guys have it. But that's part of what we really love, because we, we uh, kind of pride ourselves on taking chances and, and, and uh, not playing it too safe. You know, yeah. I came up... Um, kind of mentored a bit by the great Art Blakey. And one of the things he used to say is that a mistake is not a mistake unless you know what to do with what you've done. Hmm. So in other words, if you play something and you didn't like it uh, and you just left it out there, okay, then it's a mistake, right? But if you do something creative with it, it's not a mistake. And I always say with jazz recordings, great jazz recordings, they're full of mistakes, but we don't know it because they found something to do with it. And the key to that is being in the moment while you're playing. How can you let that go? I know for me, anytime I'm just on any gig, recording or not, you know, if there's one little note that's out of place, yeah, I might get a little obsessive about that. I might still be thinking about that 20 seconds later. How do you just let it go if if something doesn't land the way you want? Yeah. For me as a drummer, it's a little different versus, you know, saxophonist or one of the harmonic instruments where you play uh, a wrong melody note or a wrong chord or something, uh, then you may have to fix that. But for me, you know, let's say if I miss a hit or something, you just, you, you know what, you, you learn to live with it. Hmm. And I know that may sound like uh, you don't really care that much, but no, I tell you, one of my early gigs was, was playing with this trumpet player, Freddie Hubbard. And Freddie told me an interesting story about how, you know, he had gotten called. Freddie lived in California at this time, and he got a call to do a record date with Count Basie. And this was during a time where guys would just get called to just take solos. So he wasn't playing parts. He wasn't playing in the band. He's just taking some solos, right? And this was with a small group Stunt trumpet. (laughs) Yeah. So Freddie says he comes to New York, you know, the night before the the record date, 
you know, just hanging out, having fun, feeling pretty good, and go to the, the, the studio the next morning after having hanging out all night. And the and basically, you know, called the first tune, and he hadn't warmed up anything, and he played something, and he didn't like his solo. So Freddie said, he said, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll make it better the next take. So they finished the take, and uh, and Basie was like, "Okay, next tune," and he was like, "Count, um, I, I think, um, I think I might want to do another take." And he said, "Well, for what?" He said, "Well, you know, I didn't like my solo." So Basie said, well, "This is my record date, not yours. I only do one <laughs> take. Next tune." <laughs> so he said, "He said, give me a minute." He said he went to the bathroom. Splash some water on his face, and then I had to, had to get myself together because he knew basically was only doing one take. Get your mind right. <laughs> <laughs> too funny, too funny. But but after that conversation, I learned. I said, man, sometimes there are no do overs. You gotta right. you gotta be dialed in hundred percent. Just just there all the time. All the time. So how do you teach a student? Especially now in this this three second culture that we live in, how do you teach them to have that level of concentration, really finely tuned concentration for long periods of time? That's it's a hard thing, and I'll tell you. I think one of the places it starts is getting them used to uh, developing the discipline to know that it's going to take time. Yeah. Like I remember, you know, having conversations with students and and we talk about their practice time and I give them a practice log and get a practice, you know, logging your stuff. And they're practicing an hour here, an hour there. And I'm like, man, I said, at this point in your development, you should be practicing on a bad day, four hours, but it needs to be every day. And I remember a student a couple of years ago. So, you know, I, I told him, I said, man, you should be practicing six hours a day. I said, when I was your age in college, it was eight hours a day. And that's with 15 classes a semester, you know? So he said, well, Mr. Allen, what did I do wrong? He thought I was punishing him. I'm like, sure, what would you do wrong? I said, if you're blessed enough in 20 years to be working, you're not going to have this time. I said, so it's an investment that you got to put in now. And, um, but I think part of the challenge Culturally, with, with I don't hate to sound like the old fuddy dud with talking about generational differences, but uh, many of them have never sat and listened to a. I, here's the thing: when I go to schools and I do clinics, I, one of the questions that I ask students, I said, I, I said, tell me the last recording that you've listened to, start to finish, with no interruptions. So you weren't texting, you didn't get up to feed your pet giraffe, you weren't washing dishes. You just listen. And I can tell you, man, the majority of them have never had that experience. Zero. I'm saying, I'm not even saying it's got to be a jazz record. It don't matter to me. You know, but see, if we don't have the discipline to do that, it impacts how we play. I tell people the way we hear music influences how we play. So now if you think about the listening experience for a lot of younger musicians, they grew up in a digital age where... You just click a button. You're going to go to your favorite track. You're going to rewind to your favorite solo. Then you're going to go. And so they never learn to listen organically in a sequential order. And so then the playing reflects that. How does it reflect that? Have them play a ballad. I can guarantee you by the second or third course, it's double time. Have them play in two. By the second or third course, it's in four. 
Mm-hmm. Not because the music suggested it. It's just because they're bored and they're trying to get to the cool part. It's like, man, maybe the, maybe the ballad should be a ballad the whole time. Maybe, you know? Novel concept, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but these are learned behaviors. It's funny you say that because uh, I, I pulled up uh, Freddie Hubbard's original Little Sunflower the other day. I haven't listened to it start to finish in, it, since I was in college. Yeah, and I was just kind of wondering, um, am I playing this maybe the way I should? And it should obviously is kind of a moving target. Yeah. But I was even as long as I've been doing this, as as many gigs as I've played playing that song with as many great musicians, I had to listen to that recording and go, go. You know what? You could scale back everything you've ever played by ninety percent, and you'd still probably be busier than you need to be <laughs> compared to that recording. Here's the other question, Brian. As you think about how many times and how many people you've played that song with, how many of how many times and how many people played the form right? Oh well, let's don't even get into that because people get mad at us. <laughs> but I, can't, I can't tell you, man, how many times people mess up the form on that song. Sure, you know, but it's a great tune. It's a great tune, it, it, but it was definitely an eye-opening experience for me in just. Um, because we we enjoy no- novelty. I mean, it, yeah. we're human. We like novelty. So yeah. you know, every at least every four bars, we want to interject. We want to bring something into the picture. Whereas maybe we don't need to for the next thirty two bars. Maybe mm-hmm. we're only there to to serve a different role than being interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so yeah, I can I can definitely say I did try something. I started trying something with one of my students who has ADD, and mm-hmm. he has a problem with practicing because normally when he practices, he's real scattershot. For him to get even through one entire song and stay concentrated uh, through the entire thing is is a task. And so, you know, I told him, I said, here, we're going to take this one thing that we're going to do. It was some kind of sticking pattern or something. I'm like, all right. I took my watch off and I I laid it right there on the music stand. I said, we're going to do this for 15 seconds. And for 15 seconds, I want you to concentrate so hard that everything else goes away. We're only going to do 15 seconds. Mm, mm, mm. And so we did that with that exercise, turn the metronome on, do the exercise only 15 seconds. Yeah. And, and it was an eye opening experience for him to see how long that can be. Yeah, it feels a lot longer than it is when you're really concentrating. Now, if oh, you're having yeah. fun and concentrating, it might fly by. Yeah, and so you know, we went thirty seconds for the next time. We and we stayed on thirty seconds, and that's as much as we would do things. Thirty seconds. That's all we're going to do this. Mm. And I encouraged him. Now that you've seen how to practice this stuff this way, I don't want you to think about twenty minute practice sessions or thirty minute practice sessions or practicing for an hour. I only want you to practice for thirty seconds. Mm. But it's got to be a quality 30 seconds. I don't want you to uh, look at your Instagram. I, I don't want you to be thinking about, should I video myself and put this on my on my uh, Instagram or my TikTok? I don't want you to even think about uh, whether or not you like this exercise that you're doing. Yeah. You just do it. 30 right. seconds at this tempo. And here are the things we're looking for in terms of the quality of the output. And uh, it's still an experiment. 
But the idea is to gradually get kids like that built up. If they can do 30 seconds, they can go 45. They can go a minute. You stack enough minutes, then you mm-hmm. get 30 minutes of good, solid, quality practice. Yeah. When most students that I know that are college level, you know, when I tell them that they should be doing six hours worth of practice and they think it's six hours of this and that Mm -hmm. as opposed to six hours of really um, purposeful, deliberate choices. Here's what I'm doing in this moment for the next however many minutes. Here are the things I want to see differently by the time I get done with that three minutes or five minutes or however long I'm doing this one thing. It's, it's a different yeah. way of practicing. Yeah. And, and, and I love that approach, Brian, because in the first student that you, that you mentioned, you're, you're having them be accountable and invested in the process. Right. Because I think one of the challenges, because one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot over the past few years, when I left Juilliard in 2014, Aside from doing clinics and residencies, I was out of education up until this past year. And I've always loved teaching. I didn't like the bureaucracy of the, that, of the system. But I said to myself, I said, you know, all of this information that I've been given by all of these great drummers who are no longer here from Art Blakey and Elvin and Max and Philly Joe, et cetera, it's to be shared. I have to share it. Like, it's not to just because it's not mine. Right. It was given to me on loan and now I have to give it to somebody else. But the question becomes, what what can we do different and how can we serve this generation better? And I really think that we've kind of failed the younger generation from this perspective that we assume a lot. Right. For instance, many of us have been told you got to practice. Right. You got to practice. You just have to practice. Okay. But many people aren't practicing because they don't, they've never been taught how to practice. Right. You know, when I tell them there's a very basic fundamental life principle that one of my mentors taught me, who's not a musician, which is private practice determines public performance. Yes. Which simply means that the way that you practice is the way that you're going to perform. Now, that goes with music and without. You know, our parents say, you know, you need to mind your manners at home. So when you go outside, you act like you got some sense, right? <laughs> but that's the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. But the point is, is that the other thing is we've not spent time. When I say we, I'm just talking about generationally, not individuals. Sure. Spent time teaching people how to listen. Oh, yeah. Right? Because we say, man, are you listening? Yeah, I'm listening. I say, yeah, okay. We are, what are you listening to? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just checking some things out. Very vague. I said, you know. This other mentor says uh, specificity is the basis for cooperation. I said, so let's talk about how to listen. And and I, I cite, you know, that I've been listening to Kind of Blue for 40 plus years, but I hear things in it now that I didn't hear 20 years ago. Right. Or, or 33 years ago. It's the same record, but I've matured and I've learned different ways of listening. And so one of the things that I'll do with my students, we have listening sessions. And I'll point out things that that they may not have noticed. Then I'll give them references. For instance, you know, I'll point out, um, you know, if we're talking about working out of drum, drum books, we take the Chapin book and we talk show different exercises that will quote certain melody, melodies. And so you say, well, that rhythm, that comes from this song, you know, and then you play the recording and then you get them to see 
No, we have to find a way to make music out of that stuff on the page. It's not just, it's not music. It's just lines, letters, numbers, and dots. We have to make something out of it. But so now if we start to have these conversations, practice times becomes more intentional, becomes more focused, more directed. And before you know it, I mean, I've had students say, well, man, you know, and that that two hours went by quick because I had something specific that I was working on. Mm -hmm. And then the key is now let's look at consistency in a pattern. Because one of the reasons why many of us don't get better is because we're not consistent. And that's not just me with music. You practice something today, you man, you excited, and then you might not deal with that for another six months. You know? It's funny, my son is 28, he's a videographer. Mm-hmm. And uh when he was about 12, he well, my wife told me that he was getting jealous because guys were coming over to the house for lessons. So he says to me, Dad, I want to take lessons and I want to do what those those other guys do upstairs in the drum room. I, I said, really? I said, well, what is that? I go up in there and I see what you give them, those little things that you call rudiments. And I want a folder and I want assignments. I said, okay, all right, no problem. So he created a little folder and little exercises I had given him. So one day I'm sitting downstairs, my studio's upstairs, and he's walking past me real quick with his with the sticks. And I said, where you going, man? Well, I'm going upstairs to shed. I said, oh, shed. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wait a few minutes and I go up behind him and I stand outside the drum room and he comes out the room probably 12, 15 minutes later and he didn't expect to see me there and he's huffing and puffing. <sighs> I said, Jordan, what's going on? Oh, I was putting that work in, Dad. I was putting, I said, Jordan, you're in that room for 15 minutes, man. You ain't putting no work in. Yeah, I was practicing hard. <laughs> I said, listen. <laughs> so then we had to have the conversation. Yeah. Because what I realized, he was really trying to impress me, and I had to let him know, you can do it for fun. It, you don't have to try to be a professional musician. I said, however, if that's what you choose to do, you're going to have to put in some real work in real time. That's not your passion, and that's okay. And it was a great moment because it kind of opened him up to find his passion, which is in film, you know. Sure. But um, but that's the thing. You know, we have to be intentional about our process and about our growth. Very much so. Very much so. You, you raise an interesting point because getting back into teaching uh, regularly, teaching private students, one of the things I've had to remind myself is not everyone who plays this instrument wants to be a professional. And not everyone who starts thinking they want to be a professional is going to end up being a professional. Mm-hmm. They're going to end up in some other thing, but every one of them can end up uh, am- amassing this uh, this thing that they can love and that they can do. And once they get good enough to maybe play with other people, that it turns into a social interaction. Yeah. Even even if it's just a, a, a local jam night or getting together at somebody's house on a weekend to play or whatever, however that takes shape, the idea is start with this is something that you like doing that you're going to love. You're going to learn to love it mm-hmm. and that it's a journey. And, and you don't really know when you start, even if you think you're going to be a professional, you don't really know where the journey is going to take you. Right. And 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 it's changed for me. It's changing the way that I teach um, in a private situation because, in some cases, it lowers the stakes. Yeah, it's like this is totally about you doing something that 
is somewhat fun. Yeah, practicing mm-hmm. is somewhat fun. It can be. It, it, more than anything, it's a chance for you to invest yourself into something that is going to pay dividends, not just today, not just tomorrow, but years from now, because you're, you're going to meet new friends through this instrument, actual people that you're going to play with, but you're actually going to meet people that made music that you're going to love. You're going to, you, you may turn into that person that sits down and puts a, an actual album on a turntable and sit in front of a pair of speakers for 45 minutes to an hour just to listen to an album. Mm-hmm. And, and and that gives you this rich thing in your life that didn't exist before. And, right. and I know it's a real heady way of talking about it, but it transmutes itself into so many different things that, that enrich your life. Yeah. And so I know for me with private students, in, in some cases, it's lowered the stakes, so it's made it more enjoyable. Yeah. It doesn't lower my expectation. Right, but it it certainly uh, it helps me to understand a, a bigger picture, bigger picture, what I can do to help enhance what I'm doing as a teacher. Yeah, now, can we talk for a second about specifically with college? Because most most people that are going to college for this have the intention of either uh, doing this professionally as far as playing gigs, or they're going to teach professionally in some capacity. Yeah. Um, Getting back into this system, why in 2022 should someone who's maybe in high school or about to finish high school, why should they even consider college for education when they've got all kinds of different other ways they can learn? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think one of the first things that's really important and it's difficult as a 17, 18 year old to know where you want to be at 43, right? But the point is, is try to have an idea of where you want to see yourself so that you can have a plan. And so let's say, for instance, you want to play professionally, you want to teach. Going to college is is a vehicle that will allow you to be able to do that. Now, of course, the playing field has changed so much. There's been such a paradigm shift where, for instance, I only have a bachelor's degree, right? So for me to be able to have an endowed chair position and director of a jazz program is a bit rare in yeah, these times. Nice. You know, uh, 30 years ago, if you could, if you played with two or three people and did one, two records, they, you know, they, they would roll out the red carpet. But now in academia, it's really about what degrees do you have? Right. And I'll tell you um, that that's created a couple of issues for me, but one, what it should say for the, for the young drummer is that it creates, uh, it gives you options. Mm-hmm. A lot of, guys, of my peers who were teaching at 20, they didn't think they wanted to be teaching at, at 50 or 60, right. you know, but there's a thing happened called life, you know, <laughs> when you get a family, you don't want to be on the road as much. The tours don't happen as long as they used to. I mean, listen, man, I used to be gone all the time. Now the tours just are not that long anymore. The business has changed. And so, you get to a point to where quality of life being something different to you and stability and all of these other things. And so, and, and I say to, to young musicians, I said, look, get your bachelor's, get your master's. If you can get a doctorate, even if you just put it on a shelf, because at 40 something, not many people are going to want to come go and say, yeah, you know, I think I should go back and get a, get another degree. Right. Because that's, that's not realistic for a lot of people. 
So, um, and then the other part about it, like I said, when you're young, many people are not thinking about that. They just want to play and want to tour and see the world. I get it. You know, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I, I was fortunate that I started playing with Freddie Hubbard when I was a senior in college. If I had not done that, I may have gone on and got a master's or something, you know. But um, but I think it's important, though, for students to think about not only what they want to do, but to find the place that's going to help them do that. Yeah. And, and because not every school is for every student, you know. Uh, I had a, a student who, unfortunately, failed, flunked out. And last semester, um, the junior. And his reading was just poor. And he said, you know, uh, reading is, you know, music is not all about notation. I said, you're right. But if you want a degree, you got to be able to read. Right. It's just what it is. Now, I've had conversations with other people to say, you know, it's a shame that students who are just kind of naturally or organically gifted um, are not able to read, are not able to get a degree. Well, there might be a place for them. And if there is, great, you know. But it just depends on how the program is structured. If you're in a tra more traditional setting where there's ensembles with big band and all of this and they're reading charts, then you have to be able to do that. Now, we have to find a way as the educators to find a, a creative way to blend, you know, those who just have all this natural gift to help them get that skill set together to be able to function this, in this other arena with those who have this other skill set of being able to just read anything, but just may not make it feel so good. Right. They have nothing to say. <laughs> right. Right. So we got to find a way to create that balance, you know, but back to your question, I think it's just important for a young musician to understand that it's really about creating options for yourself. And I tell people all the time, the name of the game is, is options. Yeah. You know, you want to get to a point in your career where you can pick and choose because you want the music to, to always still be fun. And if it's always at 60 something, 70, you just making it cause you got to pay rent, then it becomes a job and then it's not so fun, you know? So um, I think we've all, we've all had times when we've been a little bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think coming through through COVID, a whole lot of people have been going through that, you know? Oh, definitely. Has COVID caused you to make any kind of big paradigm shift? I mean, obviously, this new teaching thing is a huge paradigm shift. How is How did COVID maybe make you refocus the lens a little bit? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I, I've often said that even in the darkest hours, there are blessings. And... Um, Obviously, we know a lot of people who've passed on from COVID and got sick and whatever, whatever. But uh, I think there have been some blessings. And one of those things for me, it forced me and it, it forced everyone to, to, to do this. Not everyone accepted it, but to just push the pause button and push and just do a reset. And for me, that meant I had to learn how to practice all over again. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, most of the time, if you're busy, if you're a working musician, when you're practicing, you're preparing for something. Right. Right. You're preparing for a gig, for a record date or whatever. But if there are no gigs and no record dates. What are you preparing for? Yeah. And so 
I every time I get up from the drums, I'm, I'm, I have a mental checklist of what I played that I didn't like that I need to work on. And that list got longer and longer and longer because I just never had time to go back and deal with it. Sure. But COVID allowed me time to say, okay, you ain't got no gigs. <laughs> you ain't got no record date. What you doing? You know? Yeah. And it just forced me to just sit down and just work on my hands and reading and pulling out old books. And But then that gets old after a while. Sure. Right? So, uh, but then it also allowed me time to just do normal stuff, man, like reading and going to bed at a regular time and eating better and you know my son got me walking man and i started walking three four miles a day and, oh wow you know just um but it, it forced me to, to push the reset button man because it's, you just realize man for many of us we were going at such a pace that was not really sustainable no no not at all and um and you fooled yourself after a while to say well everything is cool and then when you push that pause button and you have a moment to look back, you said, mm, probably wasn't that cool, just in terms of how one is living or going about their, you know, doing what they do. And then the other thing that, that came out of that, when your income is just, just slashed to, you know, 97% of what it was before, and you and then you look back two years later and you say, man, you're still here. Yeah. It, then it makes you start to think, wait a minute. So... I actually could do okay with a lot less. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. So that makes you restart to, to, to makes you start to refocus some other things too. You say, you know, I, I really need to do all of some of that stuff I was doing before. Right? So just um, because you're busy doesn't mean that the quality of your life is actually better. Yeah. Busy and productive are not the same. Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> so you're talking about getting back at, during this period and doing a lot more concentrated practice. There's a there's definitely um, a student or or maybe not even a student, but just a player that is much further down the continuum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, let's say a, a drummer's been playing professionally or not, been playing for 30, 40 years, and they don't really know at this point. They maybe they've gone through college, maybe they've gone through private lessons, maybe they've gone through a whole uh, pedagogy of stuff that has taught them a lot, and now they're sitting there wondering, "Well, what do I do now? What did you do in that situation? How did you pick what to practice and what to work on, other than just what you thought?" I that's a, that's a that's a great question, and I have an easy answer for that. I always tell people when you play, there are two questions that should be on loop. How does it sound and how does it feel? Okay. And if the answer to either one of them is anything other than amazing, your next question is, what can I do to make it sound and feel amazing? That became foundational for me to the point to say, okay, what is it that I'm doing that doesn't feel good? What is it that I'm playing that doesn't sound good? And I understand there's a separation between the two. And I just had to go back to what I used to do, which was to keep a list of the the specifics of my playing, you know? Okay, I played that thing, and sometimes I've been telling myself, oh, that rough was kind of sloppy, but it kind of sounds hip. No, it doesn't sound hip, it's sloppy. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's work on that. How can I work on that? Well, I can go back to the Wilcoxon books. That'll help. And then it was a very fundamental thing that also I dealt with to say, you know what, especially when I knew 
that I was going to get back into this arena, part of my mindset has always been you can never have a student play better than you. Now, occasionally you may get one that's going to come and really challenge you, right? But my point is, is that anytime I sit before a student, I need to be able to do what it is that I'm asking them to do. And I need to be able to demonstrate that, right? And so that just meant that I need to really go back through all of this other stuff that I knew I was going to be teaching, stuff that I had been teaching privately anyway, because the, the whole time I've been teaching privately, but just like, okay, how can I explain that thing? Right? And that's, to me, part of the beauty of teaching, where you have one thing that you want to teach, but you got to find several ways because not everybody learns the same way. And so um, I had to find ways to fine tune some of that, you know? Um, and then the other thing that, that COVID had, has helped me to deal with, particularly as it pertains to teaching, is that you just understand that you, not every student is going to love this as much as you do. And that's okay. It took a long time, Brian, for me to say that's okay. Because my mindset was before, like, well, man, if you don't love it, you just need to go. You just need to do something different. And not that I don't feel that way now, but I'm not, I'm of the mindset now where I'm not really the one who's going to tell you you're not going to make it. Right. Right. There's this whole universe that will be able to tell you that. You know, I, I don't. The results will tell you. Yeah, I don't have to be the one to tell you that. You know, but the thing is, my job is to give you the information and the tools. Now, you choose to use them or not, that's on you. You know, I'm, what I'm going to do is share the lessons that were shared with me, you know? And see, now we're in a precarious time because in education, uh, I have this conversation so much. I just talked to a friend about this last night. It's very challenging right now because this friend of mine, as we were talking, he teaches at a university in Utah, and they just had this big thing where you have to be careful because a student can sue you if, you say something that's not encouraging mm. or they felt that you were demeaning or you were. And so he's on this panel of professors and he's the only music prof professor and he's there with psychologists and, and, and other people. And he said, well, no music doesn't quite work like that. If you're playing flat or your time is bad, I got to say something. Oh no, you just got to find a way to encourage them. Like we, what? Right. So it's a It's a different time. Yeah. And and I'm certain, certainly we're we're light years away from, you know, what it was like when you know, the way I came up playing with older musicians, man, they were just, it was different. <laughs> they, Ruthless. They, throw, they had to throw a shoe at you or something, you know. But yeah. uh, you know, we don't do that anymore. But but you just understand that, you know, there's a standard that we're trying to get to. Yeah. And not not that you have to be beat up to get to that standard. I was raised to 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 feel that the bandstand is sacred, and in order to be on that bandstand, you got to pay certain dues, and you have to play with a certain level of level of reverence and respect for those who created this opportunity for you to be there. So when we start saying, "Oh, anybody can be on the bandstand," well, maybe we need more stages. So not everybody should be on the, the main big stage, right? Right. So, yeah, some people just need, they need Monday night open mic, and that's about as far as it's going to go for them. So, God bless. And it's yeah. okay. It's yeah. okay. There's no problem Absolutely. with that. Absolutely. Yeah, no Absolutely. problem with that. So, 
let's let's think about the what you see in the current college curriculum, uh, both where you're at and and just globally, mm-hmm. the way that that people are learning in college, especially given what's happening with contemporary music, all kinds of music, not just certain kinds of jazz music. Are there places where we can make improvements in collegiate level education that maybe that were things are falling through the cracks. People are falling through the cracks. Information's falling through the cracks. Mm -hmm. It's not keeping up with the times. Where can we improve? Well, that's a great question because I've been working on this proposal to do the symposium on this very thing because uh, I've spoken with a lot of colleagues around the country who are talking about their admission numbers are down. Now we can say, well, that's COVID. Now this, we don't, we, we, sometimes we don't understand what the fallout effect will be for college admission for COVID because one of the things that's happened in the arts is that it's caused a lot of people to, like I said, push the pause button and say, hmm, in these interesting times, I noticed that my friends who were musicians were not working during COVID, but my other friends who got a law degree or who's a pharmacist or who's a whatever, they're working. So it's forced a lot of younger people having conversations with their parents to say, uh, maybe you shouldn't go to school for music. Maybe you need more stability. So that's causing a lot of numbers to go down. But the other thing that's causing a lot of numbers to go down is the paradigm shift in the music to where we we sometimes, I think we've been teaching jazz education for the same for 40 plus years. And it's a difference. Um, there's, we have to look at it different. A good friend of mine says, we were talking about how we bemoan about how the young students don't know anybody. They don't know who the players are. And he says, Carl, you, you got to understand for some of these young kids, they look at us. We're like Big Spider back in Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong. I was like, what? But so how do we find that balance to keep the integrity of the history of the music together? Um, but understand that we got to move the needle forward. So, and so does that mean that we're redefining what jazz is? Well, not necessarily, but I do think that we have to find a way to meet people where they are. Right. In other words, what are we doing in the curriculum that's going to allow the students to want to come to be a part of the program? And I think every program, every degree, doesn't matter what that degree is, part of your obligation is to prepare students to have a life in that field once they leave the institution, right? So if we're only dealing with music that, if you just say so many, traditionally, so many jazz programs are just focused around big band. Okay, how many big band gigs are there? How many big bands are there, right? Professionally, not much. Do I think they should have the experience? Absolutely. But I always tell my faculty, it's like, you want to prepare a student to be able to sub for you. So think about the kind of gigs you're doing, right? It might be a big band. It might be a wedding gig. It might be a Broadway show. It might be whatever it is, right? Are they prepared to do that? That's a yes or no when they leave. Right. And so because this is why it's also important to have people teaching who are currently doing what it is these kids aspire to do. You know, so they're sitting with someone who can not just talk about what it used to be like, but what it is about now. Right. So that means in terms of curriculum, there needs to be a reboot. And in my opinion, we have to update this list of jazz standards. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I've been talking about this for years, the Cole Porters and Roger Haberstein, all of that. That's great. That need, yeah, they need to learn that. But Mulgrew Miller wrote some great tunes. Christian McBride wrote some great tunes. Benny Green wrote some great tunes. We can go down the list. So how do we, we can't get stuck because if we talk about jazz history and we talk about jazz standards, what, what were those standards? They were tunes, many of them from Broadway, from the Ten Pan Alley days, right? So these were tunes that were pop tunes of the day that they put in. So we don't have to abandon that model, but we need to start looking at some other tunes that they can play. Now, should we be allowing students to only play original music? I tell students all the time, your grandmama may like that tune that you wrote. <laughs> but when you go on the road and you're in some club in Tupelo, Mississippi, or in Beijing, and you go to some jam session, they ain't playing your tune. They're playing a standard. So we still got to we gotta find that balance between, you know, tradition and, and, and trying to move it, the needle forward. So I'll tell you, my mantra for jazz education was birthed on August 16, 1987. What was that? Well, after a concert model around Japan with Dizzy Gillespie, I'm having a conversation with him. And I just said, I said, Dizzy, man, I really wish I was around in the 40s and the 50s. And Dizzy was always laughing and joking and jovial. But he just got real serious and looked at me and said, Carl, why would you say that? I said, well, man, I could have been there when you guys were creating bebop. He said, yeah, that was an important time, Carl, but you got to remember something for you and for everybody. The way that all great artists created is there's a foot in the past and there's a foot in the futures, but you're moving forward with a sense of tradition. He said, you can't keep both feet in the past because now you're not moving forward. He said, man, bebop, Afro-Cuban, that's what it was. It, we were dealing with what we had learned, but we were trying to push the needle forward. We got to continue to do that. When I came to New York in 1981, man, Max Roach was doing duo gigs with tap dancers and rappers and poets. You know? Wow. And this is the, one of the fathers of bebop drumming. Yeah. But he was pushing the envelope, right? But that tradition was still there. It was still swinging, yeah. right? So I, I'm just saying that we have to find a way to create a better balance to meet people where they are and to validate students but at the same time, letting them know, okay, that's a great idea. That's cool. But we got to move the needle forward. And we got to, you know, but before you can do that, yeah, you got to understand what's happened before you. Right, right. So in thinking about that, if someone were wondering, well, what is some of the newer stuff? You you mentioned some things, some artists, but if you had three people that you could just say, go listen to this, this, and this as a representation of say where jazz is right now, what's, what's something that you think is going to be standard and Canon 20, 30 years from now that's happening right now. That's a good question. Um, and, and, um, and I probably should be listening more to a lot of the younger guys, but some of the guys that I listen to, uh, and, and like, for instance, one guy I really, really love is Nate Smith, but he's not so young, right? right. But some of his stuff is, is you know, it's it's kind of moving the needle a little bit. Um, you know, it's interesting when people talk about Robert Glasper, and Robert Glasper's a great musician, but a lot of it's not much different than what Herbie did in the 70s. Right. So, but my, so my point, this is not a slight on, on, on Robert because I think he's a brilliant musician and a really nice guy and I know him and all of that, but 
if we don't know what's happened before us, we can't start jumping up talking about what we've created. See, every time there's been a change in jazz, there's a couple of different elements that has changed. You know, the, what are the main components? Rhythm, melody, harmony, right? Mm -hmm. But when we talk about the change from bebop to harbop, what? Okay, tempo, complexity of rhythms, harmonic stuff. Has any of that changed? So a lot of that has not really changed. One of the things that has changed is the sound, sonic leaks, different things that are happening. For instance, drummers may be using more stacks. You know, we weren't really using stacks that much back in the 70s and 80s, although it was happening a little bit. Um, so that's changed the sound that the drummer's getting out of the instrument. Mm -hmm. um, I think one has to define for themselves, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be the jazz police, so I'm not going to make this decision on, on what jazz is, right? Some people say if it's not swinging, it's not jazz. Some people say it's got to be improvisation. There are a lot of people who call stuff that's jazz that's really just R&B. Correct. It's soul, it's funk. Ain't nothing wrong with that. I grew up with that. I love all of that, right? But, you know, I try not to get too preoccupied with what the label is, because I understand that a lot of it was created for marketing, for selling records. Yes. But um, at the end of the day, uh, to, to try to answer your question, it all goes back to those two questions of how does it sound and how does it feel? Okay. When I get up from the instrument, my question is that I make somebody smile, that I make somebody's toes tap. When we play the ballad, that I make somebody cry. Right. And if the answer is no, we've not done our job. You know, Art Blakey used to always say that, you know, the music is supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life. The great Betty Carter says that one of the challenges with younger musicians is that they forget that it's still about entertainment. And as musicians, we've not touched someone's life and transformed their life in some kind of way. Then we've not done our job because they might as well just say, well, you know what? I got a babysitter. I paid $47 for parking. My bill was $206. The waitress still mad because I didn't give her a big enough tip. Man, I could have just stayed home. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's still about entertainment, you know? So we got to find a way to be able to do that. But going back to your question, these are things that we need to be able to deal with in education. For instance, you know, at the beginning of the school year, we have these regular forums that I put together, and every time we have a different topic. So I just had some students play. And one of the things that dawned on me when they, you know, they would all come up and just play a tune or whatever, it dawned on me that they had no concept of stage presence. No one introduced the song. No one introduced the members of the band. You know, they're fumbling around like they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. You know, one of the things that came out of COVID that, that was a little interesting, you know, you watch these streams that people were doing. A friend of mine sent me a link of a stream. He said, man, is this a gig or a rehearsal that they're doing? I said, why? He said, look at how they dress, man. Yeah. I said, oh, well, okay. <laughs> you know, then we talk about, you know, we're older, right? So you yeah. just thought you you don't go on the bandstand with jeans and sneakers on and no, no shirt hanging out your pants. But right. that's right. like all out the window right now. And I think yeah. with COVID, people like, uh, we can't worry about that right now, you know. 
but, but there, there is an element of the show. Yeah. No matter what kind of music you're playing, there's, uh, you know, you know, maybe Nirvana got away with it with rock and roll in the nineties, you know, coming on with just plaid and jeans, but yeah. there, there is an element of presentation and polish that sep- there's a, that creates that line of delineation between here's our rehearsal and this is us getting ready to play for you. And, now here we are playing this music for you. There, there, yeah. there should be. Yeah, that, that's part of what people are paying for when they pay music, whether it's a stream or it's an in-person gig. Yeah, and especially now that they're coming back. The one of the things that I, I have this discussion all the time in consulting with people uh, about their music business is that your competition is not just other people playing music on the same night across town or down the block. Yeah. Your competition is a football game or a, ba- a baseball game or a theater show or a movie or an experience. Yeah. There's some other experience that people can choose to have because gone are the days are f- of spending five or ten dollars and having an entire evening. Like you said, you know that you're going to spend one hundred fifty, two hundred dollars if you take someone with you on dinner and drinks. Yeah. It needs to be an experience, yeah. and that's something that you have to cultivate. It is a, a thing that we understand that maybe young people don't. And the experience happens before the band hits the. Stand mm. right, and so even the venue, you know, I, I have a pet peeve about when you do a gig and you come to the gig, let's say it's a concert, and the sound man is playing Led Zeppelin or something. I'm like, right. come on, man, we got to set the stage for what's about to happen, yes, yeah, the ambiance you know? beforehand, yeah. And Art Blakey used to say that people see you before they hear you. If you walk into a club and the band is not on the stage yet, you should be able to look around the club and know who the band is. And he was talking about presentation. He was talking about the way you dress. If you look just like everybody else in the band, there's a certain mystique that comes when you present yourself a certain way. Right. You know, now, I, now you know, and, and I've, I've had heated discussions with people about this, about the respect for the bandstand. I mean, everything from the musicians to when they're not soloing, they're on the side of the stage texting people. I'm like, man, put the damn phone away. Yeah. The gig is happening. Yeah. Even to the point of, like, even from the other side, the audience is so comfortable, they're putting their feet up on the stage. No, don't put your feet up on the stage, right? That's a sacred. I mean, I feel that the bandstand is so sacred where, let's say if it's the Village Vanguard. I played there a thousand times, my favorite club in the world. If I go and see some of my friends play, I'm not walking on that stage when they finish. I, 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 yeah, I played there. I'm a musician. No, that's their sacred space. I'm going to wait till they come off, and then I'm going to embrace them. They're like, Carl, come on up. No, I'll wait here. That's your space. Right. You know, and we got to respect, but, but, you know, it's just, you know, that's just that's just how I feel. But, but, but the other thing, again, is about presentation. You want to give the audience to feel like they've had an experience that they can't get unless they come out of the house. Right. Because like you said, we're, we're, we're competing with, with Spectrum and, and, and all these cable companies at this point. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And, and if they just want to see some music, yeah, there's plenty of ways they can see it without leaving home at all. You know, you could you can get YouTube on your television if you've got surround sound. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Like if you just want to see some music and hear some music coming at you, there's plenty of ways to do that without actually getting in a car and going somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, you know what? This has been one of the best experiences I've ever had as far as an interview. I got to tell you. Thank you. Uh, it, people need to go back and like listen to this four and five times and get their notebook out and write some stuff. There's some gems in here. There's definitely some things I'm going to write down and put on a post-it on my, uh, on my office wall. So I look at them all the time. Oh, There's some gems in you. there, man. Thank, thank you for you. spending the time to do this. Well, it's my pleasure. If, if there's other than that Christian McBride recording that we, we just talked about, is there some more recent recording? If somebody wanted to hear quintessential Carl Allen, how you play, how you serve the music, what's a record you'd recommend people listen? Well, it's always a tough question for me because generally I don't listen to records after I've done them. But I can tell you uh, a record that I'm proud to be a part of is a, a record that just came out few months ago by a wonderful pianist by the name of Rini Rosnes. Christian McBride is on that record, uh, Chris Potter, um, a few others, and it's called All Kinds of Love. And it's just her writing is just so unbelievable. Mm. I mean, she is such a brilliant musician, man. And, and just, she's a genius of a musician, man. It's just, it's just, uh, she doesn't get a nearly the, the, the credit and the shine that I think she should, but man, it's such great writing. So there's a reason to listen to that record other than just the drumming. Oh man, listen to that last. I mean, you know, <laughs> just these, I mean, the, the music is just so. Um, it's and I'll tell you something. It's a I, as I've gotten older, I take it as a really like a high compliment. Not only when someone calls me to record, but when someone calls me to record or to play their music that hasn't been played before. That's another level, right? Because to say, oh, man, I got this gig at the club. We're just playing some standards. Okay, that's great. That's an honor. But, you know, we're continuing something that someone else has already created. But now when you're asked to basically put your voice on someone else's music, that's another level of, of love and, and respect and trust Yes. that I don't take lightly, you know. Cool. And uh, But you said something earlier, Brian, that I, that I appreciate that uh, that really is what it's all about for me is just trying to serve the music. Yeah. We're servants, man. This is, I tell people all the time, I grew up in the Baptist church, man. And, and I see the bandstand is really like my pulpit, man. It's like a ministry. It's I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying, this has been a, this is a vehicle that I've been blessed with. And I'm just trying to serve people, man. And it's not about me. This is right. not about me. This has had nothing. I'm just a vessel, man. That's all I am. You know? Man, it, well, and and it definitely shows in the in the way that music sounds when you're playing it with some of the greatest musicians. It, it definitely it'll change the way that you go about your day, and 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 and, and I've I've heard it and seen it more times than than I can count. Uh, it definitely it comes across in a in a change for me. It's just like a state change. Mm. Listen to that new Christian McBride record. It's a state change for me. I got excited. I got mm. happier than I was before I was listening to it. And oh, a couple of times you. I got a little contemplative, like, yeah. oh, it, it made me question some things. And, uh, and, and I definitely get that when I hear you play. It, it makes a huge difference, your intention. It comes across. I hope you Thank know that. You. 
I appreciate I it. But I, 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 tell you, I tell you something, Brian. You know, the thing is, man, my sister teases me and tells me I'm a waterhead because I'm always crying about something. But the thing is, man, as I've gotten older, I've become, and I think COVID also highlighted this a little bit for me. I've become so much more appreciative of opportunities to play. You don't take it for granted, man, because it's just, it. this COVID kind of took it away from us for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then now that we're getting back to it, you, you you come to it. I always say, man, coming out of COVID, man, we got to come back better. Yes. Than before. I don't care who it is or what it is that we do. We got to treat people nicer. We got to respect stuff more. We got to be more conscientious. We got to be more patient with people. We need to be kinder to ourselves. You know, it's amazing, man, how we beat ourselves up over so much stuff, man. And nothing's permanent, man. There's not, no nothing. Death is the only thing that's permanent, you know? Right. It, it's just, but it's like, man, we just got to be, you know, so every day, man, when I wake up, man, I thank God for another opportunity to try and make somebody smile. And and sometimes the gift that I've been given of music is my vehicle to do that. And other times it's just, you know, like now with being, you know, head of the program, you know, I'll send out an email to the students and say, man, I'm proud of you guys. Keep working. You know, and you don't know the impact that that has until you get a response that said, Mr. Allen, thank you. Well, I needed that today. Everybody's going through stuff, man. So we just got to be. You know, how can we help? Man, you know, I love that. I, I think that's that's a great a great adage for us to to wrap this up on. How can we help? Yeah. How can how can we leave things a little bit better than we found them? Yeah. And, and I think that's that's a great that's a great way to tie tie this whole thing up with a nice big bow. Yeah. And I thank you for your time, Carl. I really do. Oh, thank you. If pleasure. somebody's interested in your program, how would they find, let's say uh, maybe they're thinking about going to college uh, or their kids thinking about going to college, how would they find out about your program that you're you're doing now? Yeah, they just go to umkc.edu, okay. the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and uh, we have a jazz page and stuff up on there. And if they want to email me at the school, it's Allen at umkc.edu. I purposely picked the easy email address for people to remember. <laughs> So, yep. um, you know, I, I'd love to be able to answer some questions. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to hang out with me. I, I've learned Thank so you. much just in the hour we've been talking, and Thank I'm sure you. everybody else has too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Appreciate you. See you soon. Okay. Take care. That was Carl Alan, holy cow. I was there for that interview, and I've listened to it to get it ready for you for the podcast, and I still think I'm going to go back and listen to this episode another three or four times. There's just so much packed into the last hour. Thank you so much for being here for the start of Season 2 of Dial a Drummer really appreciate you for listening if you got a ton of value out of this please share it with your friends don't keep this to yourself this stuff's way too important to just keep it bottled up that's one of the reasons why i wanted to put this conversation into a podcast and get it to you 
and including sharing this with a friend. Make sure you're following the show on all the socials. We're pretty much dial a drummer everywhere. It's easy to find. But that way you'll get notifications every time there's a new episode. And there's some bonus content that we're going to kind of sneak out there in a few of the different social platforms. Things that we didn't get a chance to talk about here on the podcast. And please... Make sure that you patronize our sponsor, Session Ace at SessionAce.com. ton of great stuff from in-ear monitors to cymbal cleaners to a whole plethora of different products that you can use. I use them every single day. I love them. Full disclosure, I happen to own the company too. So anyway, that's another story for another day. I'll be back very soon. And in the next episode, we're going to get to talk to Walfredo Reyes Jr., of Chicago. I had a great conversation with him the other day. We talk about his tenure in the band. We talk about the drummers of Chicago. It's going to be an amazing episode. Be up for you next week. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you. Thanks for listening.